Last few weeks, I've been sharing with you and uh, guys in the back, if we can switch over to the full screen here, I would appreciate it. By the way, welcome everybody. And uh, it's so wonderful to see you here. It's so wonderful to see you who are online, online. And uh, we're just so grateful that we can come together and enter his presence together and receive what the Lord has in store for us. The kingdom of heaven, it's a different kingdom. We have, our nation here has been established in Canada, 1867, uh, is that right, or 76, which was, was it? 67, thank you. And uh, we've celebrated 150 plus years. In that period, we have had laws because we have been established as a nation by the rule of law. And uh, a few decades ago, we repatriated the Constitution. Anybody remember that? And some of the stuff that happened around that and the new Constitution that we have received in Canada. It was at the time of Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau and Shortly thereafter, there was the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that was established that allows each one of us to enjoy freedom. And uh, one of those clauses, I think it's Clause 33, if any of you remember, it's called the Notwithstanding Clause. Does that ring a bell to anybody? You may have heard that term in the news, the Notwithstanding Clause. Premier Ford wanted to activate or draw upon the notwithstanding clause when he wanted to legislate some people back to work. And what it basically says is that our elected representatives, the government, whether federal or provincial, has the authority for the benefit of the whole to overrule some of the human rights, the civil rights, the foundational rights, the, what's the word I'm looking for, political rights and legal ramifications that have been given to us by virtue of the charter, they can overrule that, notwithstanding what it says in the charter. That's effectively what it means. And there's been controversy about that There's in our history. There's been opposition to the times that it has been introduced when people have enacted it. Uh, there's been some who are in favor of it. But the point is, we have been given as humans authority by God. And it says so in the scripture. It says that there's no authority except that which is given by God to kings and rulers so that we could live peaceably. And we can seek and find him. That's the purpose that God has given authority to the rulers of this earth. So our prime minister, Paul, commands us to pray for our leaders, kings and uh, governors. So we pray for King Charles. We pray for our governor general. We pray for our prime minister, the cabinet. We pray for our premiers in the provinces and our mayors in our cities. 
We pray that God grant them wisdom, that they may rule with justice. That's an interesting word. That they may rule with justice in such a way that we can live. And in the midst of all of it, find God. That's what scripture tells us that that's all for. And we see that in some nations, it doesn't quite work that way. In the 20th century, we can see multiple scenarios where governments have done harm to their people. The first genocide was the genocide of the Armenians at the hands of the Ottoman Empire. And that remains unresolved. The Ottomans' descendants, the nation of Turkey, has not admitted it and dealt with it. The next big one was the Nazi advances and what they have done in many different European nations and what they have done to a specific ethnic group, the Jews, in what we call the Holocaust. And it was during that time of trying to find justice, there's that word again, in the midst of trying to find justice, that the word genocide was actually made up. It comes from geno, which is race, side, which is killing, the killing of a race. So the word genocide was introduced, and that specific genocide of the Jews was called the Holocaust because many of them were burnt in furnaces. What we don't hear much about is what that war, what Hitler did to multiple millions of Russians that were killed during that same time, civilians, not just soldiers. I'm talking like in the tens. And there was some things that happened after that that we wanted to bring justice. So there was something called the Nuremberg Trials where they arrested and tried Nazi leaders and Nazi, not just political leaders, but also scientists and business people and people that funded it, people that executed it, to try them. Jump a few decades and we come to South Africa. Many of you know that there was a conflict in South Africa between the white and the black South Africans. And there was this systemic system, or systemic system. There was this systemic situation. There was this system that was called apartheid, where there was a favor to the whites and a disfavor to the blacks. And after many years of fighting against that, Nelson Mandela came to power after he was released from jail. And Desmond Tutu, Tutu the archbishop, helped in formulating a solution to deal with it. It wasn't like the Nuremberg trials. It wasn't about restitutive, restitutive, just restitutive. I'm sorry, I can't even pronounce the word. Somebody help me out here. It wasn't, no, it's retributive. It was retribution. With Nuremberg, it was the retribution where the Germans had to pay to make things right. They had to pay a price. It was based on the principle of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It's the same principle that we teach our kids, by the way. You don't go to sleep now. You're not going to watch TV tomorrow. 
You don't do your homework, you're not gonna get ice cream. You do your homework, you're gonna get a reward. Reward and punishment, right? That's the system that's based on retribution. It, it's based on what we saw happen in Nuremberg. However, there was another system that was used in South Africa, and that was called restorative justice. So we have retributive justice, and we have restorative justice. Restorative came out of the whole concept of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The Truth and, Rest and Reconciliation Commission, TARC, was nicely called, T-A-R-C, TARC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was mandated by Nelson Mandela, and it was chaired by Desmond Tutu. And what they did was go around into the cities and villages and towns and listen to people's stories, those that were hurt and those that did the hurting. They listened to the stories of the tribes and they listened to the stories of the white leaders that were there doing the harm. The jury is out on which system is better. But the system that was used in South Africa was criticized in that the people that came up and confessed their atrocities were given amnesty, were just blankly forgiven. Nobody was tortured, nobody was put to jail, nobody was executed. Now the Nuremberg trials went through their own situation where a number of people were sentenced to long terms in jail. However, at the end of it, some of them were released. Most of them were released. And most of them were killed by specific mercenaries that were out to kill. So we are facing a situation in the world that some of the systems of justice that we adopt, not only as societies, but as individuals, we choose between one or the other. Psychologists today will tell you to raise your children by never telling them that they're good boys and girls or bad boys and girls, but that they've done good things or have they've done bad things. Remove the good and the bad from the child and place it on the behavior. Most of us have learned to do that. And we do that with one another as well. Hey, listen, I got to talk to you about that thing. You're not a bad person, but you just did something terrible. That's good. We're making progress as humans. But the situation still remains that inside of us, we each have this built-in compass. We call it morality. We call it ethics. That distinguishes between the good and the bad. And we judge the good and we judge the bad. And we are constantly training our children to do the same by the way we raise them. So it's a, it's, a, it's a situation that has now become systemic to the entire human race. And we're stuck in it. You know, when you raise a child by telling the child that this behavior is no good and that because you've done it, there's a consequence, automatically that child is conditioned to think of retribution. Johnny stole my marbles at school. I'm going to go punch Johnny. That's the extreme, right? I'm going to go take Johnny's marbles. That's a little bit softer, 
There's no violence involved. It's just theft. But that's the system that we're in. So in a way, when Jesus says these words, when he took the scroll of the book of Isaiah and read them in the synagogue, when he said that, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor, to give sight to the blind, to proclaim freedom of the prisoners and, and the, set the oppressed free. In a way, he's talking about this very thing. You know, many religions talk about this universal addiction. This addiction that we all have. And it's not addiction to food. It's not addiction to drugs. It's not addiction to drink. It's an addiction to a way of thinking. We're all addicted to our own way of thinking. Maybe addicted is a strong word and it's throwing you off. We're all confident that our way of thinking is the right one. You never go into conversation saying to yourself, maybe I'm thinking wrong. Let me see what this person is going to convince me. You never go make a real estate deal thinking that your offer is bad. None of us do that. We all feel that the way we are thinking is correct. My wife and I, when we get into an argument, it's usually about the way we think. I don't like the way she thinks about this, or she doesn't like the way I think about this. And then the words get in the way. Is this common, or just it's just us? It's just us. Yeah, I know. We're weird. We're weird that way. So, when Jesus comes and he says, I have come to declare the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's among you. It's within you. He's talking about something. And when he comes and talks to Peter and he says to Peter, I've given you keys of the kingdom of heaven. And the gates of Hades will not overcome this kingdom. So we are really talking about this, this gate that exists in the spirit that keeps us all as humans in this bondage, in this prison. Some of us may feel because we have come to know the Lord and we have been born again that we're out of there. You're right, we are out of there. The gates of Hades have released us. But just like when Israel was in Egypt as slaves, they left Egypt, but Egypt was still inside them. We have left Hades, but Hades, hell, and its system is still inside of us. So what I've endeavored to do, and I really appreciate you guys showing up and listen to me rant. I take a lot of time and prayer to prepare these sermons, believing that they are the mind and heart of God for us here at City River and those that we touch. So when we talk about these things, I'm coming at it from the perspective that I really believe that I need these changes and that we all need these changes. Paul agreed and he said... In this perspective, he said, I urge you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices in view of God's mercy. In view of what God has done to give you mercy. 
in view of what God has done to not treat you the way you deserve to be treated, but to give you what you don't deserve. You know, we have a word for that in Christianity. It's a G word. Grace. In view of the grace of God with his mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So next week, we're going to have an altar here. We're going to turn off the fire system, the fire alarm system. The altar is going to be ready with fire. And we're not going to fill the tank for baptism. But we're going to be here to see who among us is willing to offer their body as a living sacrifice. Anybody game for that? No, none of us are. None of us want to actually put our bodies on an altar to burn. Living, not slaughtered and then burnt. Living. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Not standing here and hands up and eyes closed and whatever posture we take. No, no, no. That's all. I'm kidding. That's worship. But he's making a point here. What's his point? How do you offer your body as a living sacrifice? He says, not by being conformed to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't live in that system of justice that looks for retribution, but step into a different system of justice because God has already shown you that his system of justice doesn't give you what you deserve as a sentence. He gives you grace to move you from what you don't deserve to the place that you now enjoy his grace and receive what you could never have received on your own. But be transformed in the renewing of your mind. So there's a transformation that Paul is encouraging us to step into. A transformation that involves a freedom from the jail of our own thinking that we have been trained by the systems of this world to think that he's done this, I deserve to do this. He's taken this, I deserve to take that. She's taken my eye, I'm going to take hers. He's taking my, etc. That system then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, speaking of the eyes, whatever we focus on persists. Whatever you resist persists. Whatever you focus on enters you. That's kind of hard understand because we think we know how to filter whatever we watch whatever we are absorbed in actually gets absorbed in us with food we know it's easy we understand it we are what we eat right that's easy what we see what we hear what we absorb ourselves into what we surround ourselves with begins to influence us from the outside in. So when, when Matthew quotes Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, 
your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So the condition that we are as humans are in is darkness. We're all walking in darkness. And as a matter of fact, we sing about it in Christmas. We talk about it at Christmas. There was a light that came in the midst of the darkness and the light was received and, and the darkness changed and it became lit. But look what Ephesians, Paul says. He says that everything exposed by the light becomes visible. So right now, as you're listening here, and as your conscience is beginning to examine your own heart, your own mind, your own soul, your own ego, the light of God, because we are in an environment where we have invited him to talk to us and to guide us and to change us, his light is actually able to show you things about yourself that you want to suppress and hide. But he's here and he says that everything that is illuminated becomes light. You know, I quoted the mercy of God as grace. The Bible tells us that the whole of the Old Testament, the whole history of the nation of Israel, with its prophecies, with its poet, poetic literature, with its psalms, its songs, all of that, the history of the kings, the history of the law and how the law is enumerated, all of that is for our benefit to know how to live. When Israel was really corrupted, they had gone into captivity. We know about that. We know the, the times that they had gone. The Babylonians came and took them away, and then the Medes and the Persians, and then the uh, uh, the Romans after that. But all throughout, they were under such heavy oppression. They weren't under that oppression when David was king. They weren't under that oppression when they came out of Egypt and they would set free and they took over the land of Canaan. But when they drifted from it, when they separated themselves from obeying the command of God, in other words, they figured, here's the addiction think piece again, they figured that their thinking was better than God's. And that's how we entered into this whole mess of sin in the first place. Eve thought she knew better than God in her thinking. The Satan's in the serpent came and told her, why don't you eat this fruit? It will make you as God's. So she obeyed her mind's thinking, and she made the decision, and she entered into sin and Adam with her. So God speaks to us through the nation of Israel, and he tells us how he deals with Israel. He says, you will know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake. He deals with us, and he says, and not according to your evil ways. God does not deal with us according to our sin. If he did, we would all be destroyed. He says, I will do it for my own name's sake. Because his name is good. His name is love. His name is pure. His name is holy. His name, there's no other name. We just finished singing about the name of Jesus. Because of that name, he deals with us in mercy. He deals with us in grace. So, we're going to take a little bit of a walk through a different perspective. One you probably don't hear much about at church. I'm going to talk about the word that is probably a new age world word. Anybody familiar with the word consciousness? 
You're familiar with it? Does it scare you as Christians? Somewhat. I think as soon as we hear it, our antennas go up and we feel, oh, this does not belong in the church. But let me put it this way. Albert Einstein, who lived 1879 to 1955, said these words. No problem can be solved by the same consciousness that created the problem in the first place. That's an interesting thought. He was a genius. So we have to give him some credit. What does that mean? And how does that affect us? All right. Let's get mechanical. This is the trinity of humanity. We are made in the image of God. And we have a body. We have a soul. And we have a spirit. And these are how each of us is made. Animals, we don't believe they have spirits, but they have souls. Have you ever loved a dog and received love back from a dog? Yeah. Have you ever loved a cat and got a cold shoulder from a cat? Yeah. They have souls. They have character. They have will. Okay. So, wow. Let's maybe hit those lights, please. Okay. It's a little bit better. All right, so we have body, soul, and spirit. And each one of those serves a function in our awareness of our circumstances. If we use the word awareness, is that a little bit better than consciousness? Let's see. I'm going to flip things around here. I'm going to call it the human consciousness. The body, ask any dancer professional dancer who has been trained, they will tell you that they must have good body awareness or body consciousness. They must know this leg goes here, there, but it can't go back here because there's somebody behind me. They know the space around them. They know when to jump, when not to jump, which direction to jump. They have full control with their bodies of the physical around surroundings. So they are conscious of it. The soul, and I'm now speaking to you soul to soul and spirit to spirit. I'm not speaking to you body to body. Well, my body's involved. My mouth is speaking. Your ears are hearing, but it's my, my mind, my intellect is touching your intellect, but I'm hoping that my spirit is touching your spirit. So these are the three levels that we are conscious of our surroundings, physical surroundings, intellectual surroundings, and spiritual surroundings. That is true of every human being. Every human being has a spirit, a soul, and a body. Every human being knows how to use their body to do things. The babies are just learning, and we watch their progression. Oh, wow. They're beginning to express their intellect. They're beginning to say yes and no. They're beginning to say mine and grab. They're sensitive in their spirit. They know when a good person is around and they are drawn to that person or somebody who's got some evil inside them, they're usually shying away. At the fall though, when Eve took of that tree, 
the fruit of it, something changed. The spirit died. The spirit of humanity, which had consciousness of God, was separated from God. But it didn't stop there. It manifests itself outward from the spirit to the soul. And the soul became sinful. The soul became, not only the spirit was quenched and died, was calloused, but the soul became dark. The eyes of darkness filled the soul. So the soul of each one of us, when we are in the natural state, when we are born, we have inherited a sinful nature and our addiction to the way of thinking is part of that. It is no longer that bright, sunny soul that was able to receive my intellect and your intellect and we can talk about things. We get guarded. We begin to think of how I can win. How am I going to make an edge here? How am I going to move forward? And then eventually it manifested itself to prove the point. Death, physical death took place. Yes, it lasted 100 years before that happened to human bodies back then. But we also saw what happened when Cain and Abel killed, one killed the other. Cain killed Abel. And there was physical death that they saw for the first time. But something happens because of what Jesus accomplished. Let me stop here for a second. God gave Israel the law. And the law was to be a mirror for them. But they didn't quite understand it that way. Their own way of thinking, the corrupt way of thinking, which was common in all the nations. It wasn't just in Israel. All the nations had that. Conquest, battle, victory, me first, above everybody else. So in their mind, that even came down to within themselves. Tribe against tribe, brother against brother. They would, conf they would be constantly in conflict with one another. And this soul grew stronger and stronger and stronger. And the law was not understood according to the mind of God that he tells us about in Ezekiel. They figured that by simply sacrificing and bringing sacrifices to the altar at the temple, they were able to resolve their issue of sin and stand righteous before God. But through the prophets, God would tell them, sacrifice and offerings I don't desire. I want something else from you. It's not your sacrifices. It's something else. I want you to understand because of the law that you just can't make it. So something happens. Jesus came and he put an end to this sacrificial religion. Most other religions in the world have sacrifice built into them because they try to use retributive justice to solve the problem. Israel understood that that's what God was doing. They misunderstood the point. They figured that God was trying to show them the system of law that exists in heaven, that righteousness has to be established by being outwardly good. And Jesus actually said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. And all they were trying to do 
was manifest sacrificial living, sacrifices at the altar, all the outward appearances so that people would see the physical consciousness, would see that these people are holier. We're not that far off in the church. We do the same sometimes. We sacrifice, we tithe, we do this, we do that, simply to appear good to ourselves even. But God is interested in something different. He's not asking for the transformation of our bodies. He's trans asking for the transformation of our minds. So in that process, he sent Jesus to show us once and for all that, guys, your system is broken. Not the system of the law that I gave you that is perfect. I have come to fulfill the law to show you that this whole thing about the law, we think that means that he was simply perfect and fulfilling every commandment. He was showing us something else when we missed it in the church, when we only attribute that he was holy and perfect and sinless. He was all that. But he wanted to show something else in fulfilling the law. He wanted to show something totally different that the law could not address. He wanted to show that the law of God is based not on retributive justice, but on restorative justice, where he comes in and he gives us what we don't deserve. He died in our place. He died so that there would be no more need for sacrifice. He died so that we would be saved by simply believing and trusting that he is that good. And when we do, we call that being born again. And when we are born again, this is what he told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will never see, enter or see the kingdom of heaven. So when we are born again, when we come to the end of our line and say, Lord, I can't do this. And this is something we have to practice daily as Christians even. We have to come to realize in our conflicts, in our conversations, in our fights with one another, in our fights in the world, that there's this internal struggle that we are not able to conquer. And that we need his grace and his mercy today, even as born again believers. But when we are born again believers, his spirit comes and dwells in us, that white circle in the middle. And that white circle revives the spirit. But it doesn't stop there. Paul says, work out now your salvation with fear and trembling. We think that that means we have to go and do works. Works will follow. But what has to happen is that the inside, that thing that the Holy Spirit gives us, that new life, that new understanding, that new grace has to continue to flow from within him into our spirit so that our spirit is renewed and constantly revived. But it doesn't stop there. It spills over into the soul so that our thinking, our mind, our attitudes, our will, our decision-making process, the way we think and talk to one another, it has to also change, not because we change it, but because we recognize that it needs change. And in the Proverbs, Solomon says this, trust in the Lord with all your strength and lean not on your understanding so that when you don't lean on your understanding you're no longer functioning in the power of this system that is corrupt in your soul but you're leaning on something else trusting god you're in a conflict and you're torn do i defend my right or do i just give mercy 
There was a young man years ago, hundreds of years ago, who was the son of a merchant. He was doing real well. He was selling for his father the silk that the father would bring across the, the silk highway, and he would sell it. But something happened. He had a crisis where he saw this poor person as a businessman. What do you have to do? Make profit. Today, they teach us that as CEOs or CFOs, your primary objective is to increase profitability for the shareholders. Well, it was his father's business. He finished the deal, and then he took all the money that he made on that deal and the money he had in his pocket, went to that poor person and gave it to them. His father was really upset. But something had changed in his mind, in his heart, about his attitude. And he didn't function according to this corrupt system that is the one that we are taught from birth. He functioned according to a different system that was something inside of him saying, this poor person needs it more than you do. Bless him. Now, this is what happens in the context of our salvation. There's more to this. There's something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens, you are basically taken by Jesus and dunked, baptized into the Holy Spirit. And that's the Holy Spirit outside here. You're inside that Holy Spirit bubble. But it doesn't mean that anything inside has changed. Evidence of that is that your body still corrupts. I get older and I have aches that I didn't have a year ago that I have today. It takes longer to heal today than it did five years ago or two years ago. We still get sick. That means that this corruption is still working in here. Death is still working in us, which is not too far as a leap to understand that it's also working in our souls. Being born again, spirit-filled, baptized in the spirit, Christians, doesn't resolve this issue for you. Something else has to happen. You have to come to the crisis of realizing that your mind is still corrupt. And that's the process we call sanctification. And this is a day-by-day -day struggle where your soul now is being restored, renewed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed into not thinking you know best, but trusting in the Lord. Practical? We can spend time in talking about what that means in every specific situation that you can bring. But it's against the grain of everything that we have been taught as humans. It's a system that's different. And it's a system that God wants us to step into. Eventually, the salvation, not of the spirit only and the soul only, but the salvation complete package manifests itself in one final stage. And that's glorification, where the body is now resurrected. We experience parts of this through healing. We pray for healing for everyone who is sick. We have, many of us have experienced healing, supernatural healing, that we experience by the body being renewed. And God does that as part of grace. Not because you deserve it. Not because you tithed enough or didn't tithe enough. Not because you were obedient and read your scriptures enough or you didn't read your scripture. It is grace. All those things are good. But it doesn't earn you anything. So when we look at it this way, we begin to understand that there is something that 
Einstein understood when he said that no problem can be solved by the same consciousness that caused the problem, created the problem in the first place. The problem of sin needs a higher consciousness to solve it. The corrupt mind needs a higher consciousness to solve it. It needs not a soulish consciousness, but a spiritual consciousness. The body doesn't need a physical consciousness. You can put all the salve you want. You can take all the pills you want. It's not going to fix anything. Antibiotics? Yeah, maybe close because they kill the, you know, it's a war. But the rest of those diseases that we get that kill us, physical is not going to solve it. We're still going to die. Mental is not going to solve it either. But for the things that are mental, things that are intellectual, the things that are in our soul, the solution is for us to lean on the spirit, not only our own spirit, but the spirit of God who's within us and brings transformation. The young man I was talking to you about is actually St. Francis of Assisi. His name was Francis. And he actually prayed this prayer. You may know it as the prayer of peace of St. Francis. I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to stand and read it together and close. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. This prayer encompasses the keys that I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, the keys to the kingdom that we have been given. These keys, if you remember, the key characteristics of the kingdom. The kingdom is, is here to bring healing. Jesus said, sight to the blind. The kingdom is here to bring reconciliation. The kingdom of heaven, one of the keys in it, characteristics is forgiving and peacemaking. And Francis understood that. So when he says these words, they're all built into that. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And we're going to stand, we're going to pray this prayer together. And then they're going to lead us in a closing song. Let's all stand. We'll read it slowly, line by line. But don't just read it. Recognize that it's actually the opposite of everything that our minds have been taught to think. It's the opposite of what this world has ingrained us to look out for number one. 
We don't lose to win. We win to win. We don't forgive. We harbor. We don't reconcile. But let's read it together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. I believe we're all familiar with the blessing. It's gotten so popular during the period of COVID where different worship teams from different countries have produced videos of the blessing. But let me read it in the context that it was actually given to Moses. In Numbers chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless, bless the Israelites. You shall say to them, this is the part we're familiar with. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But this is the part we never hear about. So they shall put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. It is for my namesake that I will deal with you. I will deal with you according to my namesake, according to grace, not by what you deserve. So may the Lord truly bless you this week. As we leave here, as we all go our different ways throughout the week, may his blessings continue upon you. May his face shine upon you. May that light that you see enter you, fill you, ooze out through you, from your spirit, to your soul, to your body, where your body needs healing, receive it now in Jesus' name. Where your soul needs healing from experiences, from things you've seen, from experiences you've walked out, from fights you've had, from conflicts you've been part of, from hurts you've received, may your soul be healed today. In Jesus' name. And may he grant you his peace. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. I look forward to see you throughout the week. We're back here on Sunday online. God bless you.